I'd like to invite you to please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We have essentially been in a mini-series on John the Baptist. Uh, we interrupted his ministry, his sermon in here in chapter 3 to revisit John in the womb. That was last week. But now John is in the wilderness eating locusts and wearing camel skin, calling people a brood of vipers, and preaching the word of the Lord that we need today. The world's most interesting man is no longer the guy on the Dozeki's beer commercials. It is John the Baptist, and I love this man and his ministry. The passage that we're going to look at begins in verse 15. It continues his sermon and includes the baptism of Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, um, actually, I've got a lot of names at the end of my text, over 75. So uh, pray for me. I had some, I had some names um, in the sermon text a few weeks ago. And man, did I butcher one of them in <laughs> the worst way. Ten out of ten times, if you ask me who those high priests are, I will tell you they are Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is not what came out of my <laughs> mouth. So I've got a list of names here, and I need the prayers of the saints as we go. No one said a single thing to me about that, by the way. No one. Not a single, I have, it hasn't been acknowledged until now. And so I either have, I was like, I have really good friends. I was like, wait, I have awful friends. I mean, at least, you know, all right. Our passage today is a magnificent display of the glory of Jesus Christ. And just as God has been meeting with us, he is eager to continue to meet with us and minister to us through the power of his word. Our sermon title is None Like Jesus. Luke 3, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. 
with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maith, the son of Matthias, the son of Semen, the son of Josic, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elkiam, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We did it. I redeemed myself and May God bless the preaching of his word. One of the more delightful cultural trends over the past couple decades has been what is called uh, Chuck Norris facts. Chuck Norris is, as many of you know, martial artist and actor. And these facts, Chuck Norris facts, are humorous, hyperbolic claims about how tough and how awesome Chuck Norris is. Chuck Norris was once bitten by a king cobra. After 10 excruciating minutes, the cobra died. <laughs> when the boogeyman goes to sleep every night, he checks his closet for Chuck Norris. They tried to put Chuck Norris's face on Mount Rushmore, but the granite wasn't tough enough for his beard. When Chuck Norris does push-ups, he doesn't push himself up, he pushes the earth down. <laughs> Chuck Norris has a polar bear carpet at home. It's not dead, it's just afraid to move. <laughs> there have uh, apparently been books that have been written with these, The Truth About Chuck Norris, 400 Facts About the World's Greatest Human. Uh, at one point, Norris responded with a column, and uh, he said he is flattered, he said he is entertained, he acknowledged the humor in this article, he shared some of his own favorites, and then... In 
that article, which I went and I went and read this week, he disclaimed his own prowess and greatness in favor of the unrivaled greatness of Jesus Christ. And yes, in doing so, Chuck Norris became even more epic than he already was. This is what he wrote. While I have as much fun as anyone else reading and quoting them, let's face it, most Chuck Norris facts describe someone with supernatural, superhuman powers. They're describing a Superman character. And in the history of this planet, there has only been one real Superman. It's not me. And then, commenting on one particular Chuck Norris fact regarding the ability of his tears to heal sickness. Norris said, if your soul needs healing, the prescription you need is not Chuck Norris's tears, it's Jesus's blood. He said, there was a man whose tears could cure cancer or any other disease, including the real cause of all diseases, sin. His name was Jesus Christ, not Chuck Norris. I was like, okay, we see you, Chuck. We see you. Bringing the gospel. Now, here's the thing. When, when the ministry of John the Baptist took off, he became wildly popular. And people started to wonder if this great leader, this great orator, might be the Christ. And the response of John the Baptist in that moment was to lower people's estimation of himself and to direct the hearts and minds of the people to another to direct the hearts and minds of people to Christ. Here is one who is great and glorious. Here is one who is worthy of praise. There is none like him. Don't be too impressed with earthly leaders. Far better to be impressed with Christ himself. Martin Luther said this about John the Baptist. He said, John directs all, even his own disciples, toward Christ the Lord. The true characteristic and mark for the identification of false teachers is this, that they draw the attention of their hearers upon themselves and their lives and not away from their person toward Christ. Faithful teachers will be those who point to the glorious Christ and hold up the majesty and the surpassing worth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can find churches that focus on a lot of different things, but our entire mission as a church is to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, is to glorify this Lord and Savior. What is the whole purpose of life? It is to treasure Christ. What is the path of lasting joy? Not our own accomplishments, but the finished accomplishment of Jesus Christ. What is it that, that sustains us through suffering? It is knowing Christ. John Owen, after the death of his wife and 11 children, wrote that knowing Christ is the sovereign antidote that expels the poison. Here is comfort. Here is hope. Here is the, the strength to sustain us, the strength to press on, all found in knowing Christ. And so our one great desire is to call attention to Christ and to lift up the name of Christ that we might know Christ better and be sustained by this knowledge. 
J.C. Ryle says, a minister who is really doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. This passage calls our attention to Jesus. Who do you say that he is? This is who he is according to this passage. Three points. One, the mighty baptizer who is Savior and Judge. The mighty baptizer who is Savior and Judge. This is verses 16 and 17. There are several things that John says about Jesus in these verses, all intended to show the superiority of Jesus. There are subpoints under point one here. I have four of them in what John says in verses 16 and 17 about this mighty baptizer. First, he who is mightier than I, verse 16 is a declaration of the unrivaled power, the might of Jesus. For any of you who are aware, you come to church here, aware of your own weakness and inability today, God is calling your attention to one who is mightier than you. He is mightier than I. He is mightier than John. He is mightier than us all. In Jeremiah 50 verse 34, it says their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jesus is the mighty one. He is the mighty Redeemer, the mighty Lord of hosts, the mighty God. He is a mighty refuge for our souls. He is a mighty help in time of need. But one who is mightier than I. And then second, John highlights that Jesus is worthy of honor. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In those days, people went barefoot or wore sandals. This made their feet distinctly nasty. And where there was a great teacher, the students would follow him around and do everything for that teacher. Kind of like what our interns do for me. Uh, No, I'm kidding, they don't. (laughs) But the one thing that, that students and disciples didn't do is untie the teacher's sandals. There was, in fact, uh, an ancient rabbi who said that very thing. Disciples should do everything for their teachers except loosen his sandal strings. Untying the straps of a sandal was the role of a slave. It was degrading. And here's... John the Baptist, whom Jesus will say is the greatest born to women, saying that he's not worthy to do that task for Jesus. Jesus is so great and so glorious that we are not worthy to do even the lowliest of tasks for him. We are not worthy to be his servants. We are not worthy to preach his glorious name. But he in his great mercy has given us the privilege of worshiping him, the privilege of knowing him, the privilege of following him, the privilege of serving him every day of our lives. Mightier than I. Worthy of adoration. So high above us. And then third, John says that Jesus brings a greater baptism. 
I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The, the comparison again is showing the superiority of Jesus as John is calling attention away from himself to this glorious Savior. And John gives the promise, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is a broad reference to all of Jesus' work in salvation and judgment. But the language used here is striking because it shows that salvation involves the gift of the Spirit and an experience of the Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now there are, there are differing legitimate opinions on what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. In fact, ask a different pastor on our team and you might get a different answer, but uh, what do you know? I have the pulpit today. And um, <laughs> so differing legitimate opinions on this, you, so you might disagree with me on this, but actually what I want to do, I think John Piper explains this well and I want to share a quote from so you might disagree with me and John Piper and John Calvin and D.A. Carson and Charles Spurgeon and Charles Hodge and George Smeaton and Max Turner and all of the Puritans you may disagree with us that's fine let me read what John Piper says on this point it's a lengthier quote than I normally share but I promise it's worth it he says Jesus immerses people in the spirit that's what the word baptize means there are pictures in the Bible of the Spirit being poured out, but when the idea of baptism, that is dipping or immersion, is brought in, the point is that the Spirit is poured over us to such an extent that we are enveloped in Him. The point of this image is that the Spirit becomes profoundly and pervasively influential in our lives. When you are immersed in something, it touches you everywhere. So when John says that Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit, he means that the day is coming when the lives of God's people will be plunged into the life of the Spirit with profound and pervasive effects. He says, as I've tried to let John define for us what he means by baptism with the Spirit, it seems to me that the term is a broad overarching one that includes the whole great saving, sanctifying, and empowering work of the Spirit in this age. I don't think it's a technical term that refers to one part of the Christian life, say conversion, or speaking in tongues, or a bold act of witness. It is the continual and sometimes extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people. It immerses them not just in one or two, but in hundreds of his powerful influences. So in other words, this is Piper continuing, in other words, if you are not born again, and that describes some of you here, you're not a Christian. If you are not born again, one way to describe your need is that you need to be baptized with the Spirit. That is, you need to be plunged into God's Spirit with the effect that you will be born again and come to faith in Christ. And I pray that God does it today. 
Piper says, if you are born again, but you are languishing in a season of weakness and fear and defeat, one way to describe what you need is to be baptized in the Spirit. That is, you need a fresh outpouring of his Christ-revealing, heart-awakening, sin-defeating, boldness-producing power. That's what you need. Every spiritual need that we have before and after conversion is supplied by Christ immersing us in greater and lesser degrees in the Holy Spirit. Oh, may Jesus, the mighty baptizer, pour out his spirit upon us once again. And may it be the cry of our hearts that we long for this work that Christ has promised he will do. That we long for that work to continue in this church and in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then fourth, subpoint under point one, you're tracking. John makes clear that Jesus is the judge of all. There's this image given in verse 17 of a man sifting grain at harvest time. They would use a large fork shovel and the wheat and the chaff would be thrown into the air and the heavy wheat falls and the light chaff blows away. Jesus came to, to divide into two groups. And just as the chaff would be gathered and burned, so it is with those who reject Christ. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The great separation is coming. The great judgment is coming. Which is your future? Friends, it is not too late to turn to Christ and to be saved from eternal destruction. All of this is the preaching of John the Baptist exalting Christ who is the mighty baptizer who is Savior and Judge. Now verses 19 and 20 describe John's imprisonment uh, because of his boldness and his faithfulness to the truth. And then following John's imprisonment is the baptism of Jesus. That leads to our second point, and these next two points won't be as long as the first one. Who is Jesus? Second point, the beloved Son of God who brings God's love to us. He is the beloved Son of God who brings God's love to us. In verse 21 is where Jesus is baptized by John, which raises a question. It, it's an important question. If this is, as verse 3 of the chapter says, if this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that's John's baptism. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why on earth would Jesus be baptized? Jesus needs no forgiveness because he has no sin. Why is he baptized? It's a good question. Part of what he is doing here is endorsing John's ministry and affirming his message. 
This is also a moment in which Jesus is being set apart for the ministry that is to come. He's being anointed with power. But I think the best answer is this, among the things that Jesus is doing in his baptism. Jesus is publicly identifying himself with people who need the forgiveness of sins, namely all of us. In being baptized along with, verse 21 says, all the people. In being baptized with all the people, he is identifying with all the people. Dale Ralph Davies has a beautiful comment in his comments on this passage. He says, why is Jesus the sinless one submitting to something that sinners need? Because already at the very beginning of his public work, Jesus is saying that he has come to stand in the place of sinners. The shadow of the cross falls across the waters of the Jordan. In his baptism, Jesus commits himself to take the sinner's place. That's what he's doing. He's identifying with sinners. He is revealing the reason he came. He came to stand in the place of sinners. In my place, condemned, he stood. And as he was plunged into the waters of the Jordan, the shadow of the cross fell across those waters. He was numbered among sinners so that sinners like you and me can be saved from the judgment that we deserve. That's the significance of the baptism of Jesus. Already here at the outset, revealing who he came for and what he came to do. When he was baptized, he was then praying. Verse 21, we'll actually see that throughout Luke. As you're reading and studying Luke on your own, look for the times Jesus is praying. A significant theme. And Luke loves tying prayer and the Spirit. And that's what we see here. While Jesus was praying, the heavens open, the Spirit descends, which was a, a physical, visual sign uh, like a dove in which Jesus uh, was anointed with the Spirit. The heavens open, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. An audible, divine testimony concerning the identity of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. You are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. This is not as we have seen the voice of angels coming from heaven. This is the voice of God himself. And so we see this is a Trinitarian text calling attention to the importance of Jesus and his mission. The son is praying. The spirit is descending. The father is speaking. One commentator says Jesus is equipped with the spirit's power and assured of the father's pleasure. That's what's going on here. He is equipped with the Spirit's power. And if he needs the Spirit's power, brothers and sisters, how much more do we? And he is assured of the Father's pleasure. How do you think Jesus felt when he heard those words? Words of affection. Words of approval. You are my Beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. You are loved by me, and I delight 
in you, my son. And here's the amazing thing, and the whole mystery of the gospel, is that when Jesus came to experience the wrath of God that we deserve, he did it so that you and I could hear these same words spoken over us as children of the living God. Phil Riken says this, the good news of the gospel is that if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then God is just as pleased with you. The father's words of affection and approval are for his son and for everyone who has faith in his son. Jesus came to bring us into the father's love. The things that we do are not pleasing to God. If we had to stand before God the Father on our own merit, we should never gain his approval and we would never deserve his affection. But we do not stand before him on our own merit. As soon as we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we stand before the Father on the merit of his Son. Now, God the Father looks on us with the same affection and approval that he has for Jesus Christ, his worthy son. This is our hope, Riken says, when we are lonely or needy or fearful or anxious or burdened by the great weight of our sin. It is our joy when we feel that no one has ever really loved us the way that we long to be loved. No matter who we are or what we have done, God is not unloving or disapproving, but says to every one of his children, oh, he says it to you, Christian, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Hear the Father speak that over you today. And may each one of us feel the Father's love for us in Christ today. The third point and what's revealed about Jesus in this larger passage, he is the hope of humankind who does what no one else could do. The hope of humankind who does what no one else could do. It's always difficult to know where to divide particular passages. Uh, this entire sermon was brilliantly planned to come to a climactic conclusion with a riveting genealogy in verses 23 down through 38. It is likely that Luke is recording here the legal line through Joseph. We today uh, consider generally consider genealogies to be boring, to be unimportant, but in many cultures they are of great importance. And in fact, Luke is very intentional in the content and the placement of his genealogy. And that placement we're going to see some in the passage that follows this one. He knows what he's doing. There's a reason that he puts it here and not at the beginning. Um, just as this is my beloved son proves the deity of Christ, 
the genealogy proves his humanity. So this is a, a testimony to the authenticity of the historical identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the one really important thing to notice about the content of the genealogy. Whereas Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, and he does it because he is emphasizing Jesus as the Savior of all peoples from all nations. Jesus is a Savior who identifies not just with part of humanity, but with all of humanity. This is part of Luke's celebration of the worldwide Savior. And so the genealogy not only connects Jesus with David because Jesus is the true and better king, it not only connects Jesus with Judah because Jesus is that promised lion of the tribe of Judah, it not only connects Jesus with Abraham because Jesus is good news for all nations, but also connects Jesus with Adam from whom the entire human race descends. And this is to show that Jesus came into the world not for the sake of one culture or one nation, but for all humanity. So what Luke is doing here is saying, before we get into his ministry, let's be clear who Jesus loves, who he identifies with, who he came to save. He came to save all who will believe in him. See, Jesus came as a second Adam. We, we sang it earlier, Adam's helpless race. And we heard how death reigned ever since the days of Adam. Just as Adam was a representative of the entire human race, and in Adam, sin and death has spread to all. So Jesus comes as a representative who brings not death and sin, but who brings life and salvation to those who will believe. Adam is the sinful son of God. Jesus is the sinless son of God. One has arrived who is the hope of all the world. One has arrived in whom salvation alone is found in his name. Phil Riken says, commenting on this genealogy in Jesus Christ, all of the promises that God made to the sons of Adam have been fulfilled. Jesus is the great king that God promised to David, the ruler that he promised to Judah, the international blessing that he promised to Abraham, and the Satan-crushing Savior that he promised to Adam. This is our Savior. He is glorious and there is none like him. And today, what God is doing and what we are doing is calling attention away from ourselves to this glorious Savior. The hero of the story is not John the Baptist or Chuck Norris or any of us. The hero is Jesus Christ. He is the mighty baptizer who is Savior and judge. He is the beloved Son of God who brings God's love to us. He is the hope of all humankind who does through his life and death and resurrection what no one else could do. He is the Jesus of history. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who fills us with his spirit even today. He is the one through whom we become beloved sons of God and experience the favor and blessing of God. 
He is the one who fulfills all of the promises given to Israel, the long-awaited hope of the people of God. Friends, trust in him today. Trust in this glorious Savior. Treasure him today and live for his glory. There is none like him, and he is worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen.